Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Midlife Wellness NP podcast. I'm Kim Hefner, board-certified family nurse practitioner and menopause specialist. Today on the podcast, I am joined with Beth Romero, who has a background in psychology, and she is the author of the brand new book, Happy AF. I know you are going to get a lot out of this conversation because I absolutely love the book. So stick around. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. And welcome to the Midlife Wellness NP podcast. Let's go. Hi, Beth. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. Yeah, I cannot wait to jump into your book. It it was just such a great book and it really, really resonated with me and I cannot wait to share it. So let's just start with who you are, what you do, and then we'll talk about your book. Okay, great. Uh, My name is Beth Romero. I am foremost a mom of two wonderful children. Um, We live in Philadelphia with our two very, very cute dogs. Um, I have been 30-year career in sales, marketing, and branding. And in 2020, I decided to write a book, kind of um, summarizing my experiences for that year and so forth. And that's what brought about um, Happy AF, which was just debuted this past November 2023, November 14th to be exact. So I am thrilled to talk about the book and expose more people to the book because I really think um, it has a lot of wealth of information that can help a lot of people. So I'm super excited about it. Yeah, you're so right. It totally resonated with me. I love the quotes you chose in this book. And it was so interesting because I love the Stoics. I love Jim Rohn. I love so much of what you shared. That's I was so like, great. I was like, I feel like I know you already. Like, how did you know? Like, how did you know that we needed to meet? Because I love so much of what you shared in this book. And I know other people will love it too. And it's not like we can't get all these different advice and things all different places, but I loved how you put it all together and just you know, laid it out. Like, this is what to do. These are the steps. And so um, why don't we talk about the why behind the book, what motivated you to write it? And then we'll just kind of walk briefly through what the readers can expect while reading your book. Sure. Sure thing. Um, So as I said, 2020, I wrote the book. um, And that's because 2020 pretty much leveled me. Um, I I call it like Old Testament style (laughs) devastation. It was just I was at a point in my life that I hit like rock bottom and, you know, no one ever decides one day and wakes up, Hey, I'm going to be in rock bottom. Like typically like it's this slow insidious process. And for me, it was very much the same. It started happening probably two to three years um, prior one thing after another, and then COVID. And then I lost my father, my dad, who I adore to COVID in the very early stages of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And everything that had happened prior to that, the ending of a seven-year romantic relationship, losing my job after closing on a brand new home after a week, my dad passing, and then the social isolation um, of the pandemic itself. We lived in California at the time, which was um, had very stringent stay-at-home orders and recommendations. It just all was like this avalanche of one thing after another that in and of itself, each one taken by itself would be fine, but the the combination of which just kind of leveled me. And I wasn't, it's not typically my nature, and I write that in the book. Um, I'm typically like choose fire type of girl, burn, burn the ships and move forward. And so it was really shocking. And I actually, I literally had an aha moment where I was walking around my house and um I was walking around my house with my my head down and I realized I was literally not figuratively walking with my head down and I had a big mirror in the hallway and I just looked up and I I I this is an honest to god story um I I said to myself like who are you like I didn't even recognize the person in the mirror because I had just pretty much abandoned everything in life that I knew to be true, or that was a choice that I would need to make to have like healthy well-being. And it was just such a come to Jesus moment, honestly, that um I I remember I walked into my office and I, I'm like, my God, I'm so depressed. And, I, and I'm like, I started Googling what is the opposite of depression? Like I need to I need to stop this because I'm 
I was a single mom with two teenage kids and I had to get my act together and I, I had to be there for them. And just this clearly was not working. And it was that original Googling that started taking me down this rabbit hole of finding intentional activities that would change my mental well-being and happiness. Like I wanted to be happy again. I didn't want this to be my new norm. And I, I've always been research oriented. I mean, for everything, like if I'm going on a trip, I'll research everything, every place, every restaurant, that's just my nature. It's it's who I am. And I just started doing assiduous research on, on happiness and how to improve your mental well-being and how to get out of depression. And I mean, literally in the book, there are over 2000 references to research articles, clinical studies, books, and so forth. So I really wanted people to know that everything put in the book wasn't just conjecture or my hypothesis or my suggestion. Everything was based by clinical research. And I wanted to present all that material in a way that was relatable and that was fun. And that was like sometimes cheeky or, I mean, that's like the, I think anyone who sees the title happy AF, you realize this isn't going to be like a thesis dissertation or not stuffy approach to language. And that's why I love that you love the quotes. I, I literally, that's another thing I do. Those quotes are quotes that I have kept. Like I take snapshots of things things on my phone that I want to remember kind of like as little reminders or love notes to myself. Um, and those were quotes through the years that had really resonated with me. And I'm like, I wanted to incorporate that and just present it in a way that was palatable and that it was fun and it was fresh and hopefully that people could benefit from it. So, I mean, that's kind of the why I always say I didn't set out to write a book, the book set out to write me. And I say that over and over again, because it's true, because one day I just started writing my thoughts together at different times. And I started reading, I'm like, you know, I I think this could be a book here. And I think this could actually help people. And then um, I was reading a quote from Brene Brown, who I just love saying, you know, someday you're going to tell your survival story, your story of what you went through, and it's going to be someone else's survival guide. And I was like, I can repurpose this pain in a way to have it really be positive. And, and that's how the book came about. And I'm really, I'm really proud of it. And it's, it's a labor of love in so many ways, because it's how I move the needle from like rock bottom to like functioning again. And, you know, there's a lot of vulnerable stories in there. There's a lot of stories in there. I'm not so proud of because, you know, I was messy in my brokenness, but I really think that when you're authentic and you're vulnerable, you like, create a space to allow people to show up the same and resonate like, wow, like I've been there. So, and I, and I feel like we've all hit rock bottom at some point and then all for various reasons and it may look differently, but um, we all need a little help getting back up the mountain. So that's, that's kind of the origin story of the book. (laughs) I so agree with that. And so Beth, what was it that, you know, when you started writing this book, I guess what what so many women probably go through, I know just turning 50 and things changing in midlife. And sometimes we do in midlife end up on our own again, or, you know, of our own doing or out of our own doing. And so that's why I feel like this book was so, it's so great for, especially during this time of life, but for everybody, how did writing this book heal you or did it heal you? Oh my God. A hundred percent. Well, when I started writing the book, I was 53. You know, and I remember thinking at that point, this is not how I wrote my fairy tale, people. Like, I wasn't supposed to be 53, divorced, single mom, never saw a pandemic coming, like an epidemic like that. I wasn't supposed to be like unemployed. Like, what what is happening? Like, and this is on top of being in perimenopause. You know what I mean? Which is a whole other cluster of things going oh, yeah. on physically, psychologically, mentally. And um, I think one of the things, one of the greatest things about this book is that it it made me realize that everything that happens in our life, the good and the bad can serve a purpose. And um, as 
bad as that time may have been, I don't regret any of it because the ultimate purpose of it like brought me to where I am today, which is stronger, more resilient, more empathetic, more loving. And I don't think I would have reached that level if I hadn't gone through that. So I think it was, um, it was just really eye-opening to see, to view it as another rite of passage in my life and to actually view my 50s as a new beginning. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? As opposed to, wait, this wasn't what it was supposed to be. So um, it actually had me view where I was totally differently, which I was so thankful for that too. Yeah. It's so inspiring too, because like our life is not over because we're in our fifties. Like there's so many great things that we can do. And I think that's what I want women to know. It's like, we get to decide that, right? Like it's up to us. Percent. I mean, I dedicate one of the last chapters about it, um, where it was very important for me to put that in. And I, and I did that. I wrote this whole list of people who, depending on the decade of a life, they started, whether they started in their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, their 70s, that. their 80s. You know what I mean? That's yeah. when they started. They didn't have that mindset of, oh, I'm 60. I can't learn this. Or I or I could have been like, oh, I'm in my 50s. I've never written a book. I can't do this. Like to realize that um, there's no timeline on our potential. You know, and I think that was really important. And when you recalibrate your thinking that way, everything looks like an opportunity. And so um, I, I, I tried to end the book on that very positive note, because that was one of the biggest aha awakening moments for me. Yeah. I'm 56 I... And I still believe I'm going to find the love of my life. There's no doubt in my mind. And like, I'm excited for it. I can't wait. Like, I believe he's out there. So. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that. And I so agree. And that is so inspiring because it's so true. And we can get, we can put so many limitations on ourselves and what we can do in life. And Mm -hmm. I do, I want to jump into that, Beth, and talk about what you talked about, how we have this negative self-talk and these patterns that we have. Um, let's start with negativity bias. What does that is so true, by the way? Um, what is negativity bias and why are we wired this way? What did you learn? Yeah, I mean, this was part of the research that we are actually wired to look for threats than we are rewards. I mean, that's ancestral, like in our DNA, because our ancestors would wake up in the morning, look outside, and they'd look for threats as opposed to looking for that. But it was necessary for their survival, you know, and, and to a certain extent. And so we're hardwired that way. And negativity bias, it's not necessarily a bad thing because it it helps us survive. It protects us from threats. It helps us learn from our mistakes. I, I, I live in center city, Philadelphia. So if I'm walking out to walk my dogs at night, I'm not first looking up at the stars. You know what I mean? I'm looking around to make sure that I'm safe and that protects me. And so it's a positive thing in that respect, but we have to be cognizant of the fact that that is how we are wired to innately look for threats because we need to counterbalance that too. Yes, it worked for the Fred and Wilma caveman days, but if we're constantly in that looking for threats, looking for negativity, like looking for what's going to hurt us, that negatively affects like our our brain and our our neural pathways. And we have to balance that out and really be conscious of our thought patterns and how we look at life or we view situations. So while negativity bias helps for survival, you really have to be cognizant of your self-time to make sure that it's not your self-time, your self-talk to make sure it's not skewered in like one direction where you're only focusing on the negative or it's only negative self-talk. You really need to balance out that ratio. Yeah. So and I think it was really interesting that like, it's not really, oh, you know, we're, we're just so negative. Like we are hardwired that way. And it explains it when you think about it to a certain extent, but we also have within our power to counterbalance that. And um, that's why I spent a whole chapter just because I, on thoughts mm-hmm. and 
And I did thoughts early on because thoughts really predicate everything else. Mm -hmm. How we think predicates everything else that we do. And I don't think people realize that you can actually change the functioning of your brain by what you're thinking. But the sword cuts both ways. You can also change it for good. (laughs) You know, you can blend a good witch of your thoughts like for good by focusing on specific ways to rewire your brain for happiness too. And again, this is all backed on neuroscience and clinical research. This isn't me just saying, hey, think positive. Yay. You know, it's it's all research-based studies and it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Um, when you talked about negative thinking, destructive thinking patterns, this really resonated with me. And I really think that some of them will find sound familiar to the listeners as well. Can you talk about some of those destructive patterns or yeah. thoughts that we yeah. put on I mean, ourselves? There's a myriad of them. I, I focus primarily on on four of them because I felt like those are the four that we tend to engage with on most often in our day-to-day lives. And I called them the four horsemen of the apocalypse for happiness. Um, <laughs> one was black and white thinking, you know, always thinking in extremes, good or bad, without having that shades of gray in between. And let me tell you right here, grace lives in the gray. (laughs) You know what I mean? And if you think always this way or always that way, it, it is, you're setting yourself up for failure. So we have to allow ourselves to think in the in between because that gives us grace and that gives us space. Another one, um, is personalization. And, I used to really, really fall prey to this, especially if I would let like my codependent tendencies come to mankind. I would think that something that I did or something that I said caused what was happening, you know? And it's kind of like, hey, the world doesn't revolve all around you. It's not all about you, Beth. Like, come on, catch a realist. But like, we always think, oh, it's someone in a bad mood. Did I say something? Did I do something? And you have to realize like, it's not all about you. People have their own things going on all the time that have nothing to do with you. And that is a very freeing way to think too. I really try to impress that one on my children. Um, Another one also very inherent to my my family being in the Italian lifestyle is catastrophizing. Like we used to, like you call my, you used to call my grandmother, she'd be like, who died? You know what I mean? Like, what's the matter? Like, that was the first thing, like always assuming the worst has happened. And we tend to do that. We tend to catastrophize things. And I talk about doing um, this uh, exercise. If you, the what if exercise that you think of the worst thing that could happen and then go, what if, what if, what, and then what happened? And then what would happen? And then what would happen? And when you break it down like that too, it's like littlest common, tiny denominator. It's really not as daunting as anything that we think is going to be. And then finally I talk about filtering, which kind of goes back a little bit to the negativity bias while always looking through things through a negative filter. Mm -hmm. We really have to be aware of our filter and our perception and how we view things and how we view events that happen to us and how we even view people. And um, thought distortions can really, really affect your daily well-being and your happiness. And when you're cognizant of them and you're aware of them. I always think awareness is the is the first step in everything. You know, you have to be aware of them to be able to recognize them and then stop and pivot and do something else. So and again, that's why we talked about thoughts so much, but um I think unconsciously so often we engage in these thought distortions of the catastrophizing or the personalization or thinking in black and white that we don't even realize it and when you realize that you're doing it is the first step to change oh my goodness you're so right but i was reading it and i was like okay yep i do that i do that uh-huh. we all do yep, yep. we all do <laughs> that's why i was like we got to talk about this because you're so right you 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 nailed it um Do you believe we can, you know, some people, sometimes we're just not wired for a sunny disposition, right? We're just sometimes that's not us. And sometimes overly happily people can be a little annoying. Um, I get that. I I agree with that too. Like like, always happy. You're like, oh God, get away from me. If you're not, you know, you're like, totally. 
Um, <laughs> do you believe we can truly rewire our brain for positivity and happiness? And and if so, you know, what ways did you do this yourself? And you talked about a little bit of them, but um, how can we really truly change our thought processes? Oh my God. There's, there's ways that you, well, until I did the research and I read the studies or I read the books on it, I didn't realize that doing this particular exercise or doing such and such really actually changes our neural pathways. Um, literally, probably the most effective, the easiest, and the one that has a whole host of benefits is gratitude. Harvard researcher who wrote a book about it. And it, I mean, there's study after study after study after study that if you take five minutes a day to write down three things that you're grateful for, literally you will change and rewire your brain. Because what happens um, with our brain, our brain is so amazing, is that when we write down goals or we write down thoughts or so forth, our amygdala and our reticular activating system, it picks it up and it imprints in our brains. And then throughout the day, subconsciously, our brain is trying to find things that actually support that narrative, which means if it's a negative narrative, your brain will actually pick up things to support that as well. Mm -hmm. So when you are writing down every single day, five minutes, that's it, 21 days in a row, I tell people next exercise, just try it for 21 days and see mm -hmm. five minutes, things that you are grateful for, you change your filtering in your brain so that you start to look around you in an attitude of gratitude and your brain starts to continue. It kind of picks up the torch and carries it over the finish line. So that's probably the easiest one. And that in setting goals, I, as I told you, it's like setting goals is another way to do it. Meditation is another way to do it. And I was really, um, it's so funny. Um, and I find this to be true in life. Sometimes the things that you find that you're most resistant to are the things that you should do, right? Because, <laughs> like, like, why are you resisting? What you resist persists, you know? And any of things that I had originally been like, oh, that's too new agey or like eye roll, like, okay, meditation, okay, affirmations. Those were the ones that probably provided the most benefits. Meditation is another huge one that really rewires the brain. And um, because that wasn't really me, I went to the Calm app, believe it or not, and started doing guided meditations to help me because I wasn't one who could just lay. If I would lay there and try to do it myself, I would just be like, this is stupid. This is dumb. You know what I mean? But the guided meditations, suddenly like you notice over time, a difference in how it's affecting how you're viewing things. Um, there were so many, like hugging, hugging, literally hugging someone rewires your brain. That, I love that because we are very much a touch family. We are, my my one um, child said, mom, I need at least nine hugs a day. And there are studies oh. that show hugging actually rewires your brain. It's the whole reason um, when babies are in the NIC units that they do the Kango care, the touch, because it affects their myelin development. So this these studies are proven to be, but hugging, like something as easy as that can help rewire the brain. Your life, affirmations, again, a huge one. I was going to ask you, do they work? Oh my God, huge. So our brain can't determine what we tell it, whether it's true or not right? So it just believes what you tell it to be true. So if you get fired from your job or you worry about getting fired from your job, it creates the same neural chaos in your brain because it doesn't know what's true or not. So all of our worrying about the things that never happen negatively affects our brain neuroplasticity. Same thing goes true. Luckily, the sword cuts both ways. You could say... I'm beautiful and sexy at every age. JLo's affirmation, right? Yeah. And your brain doesn't know whether that's true or not. So it's, it believes it and it starts to pick up evidence for that. That's why affirmation, I tell my kids that every single day, watch your self-talk. It's a conversation, not with yourself, but with the universe, because you don't realize how, what you tell yourself, you then, it really frames your whole day and you picks up along that. And I, Gratitude and affirmations, I think for me, were probably 
the two most important things. And I used to think affirmations were ridiculous. Like, oh yeah, I'll put a sticky note up on the bathroom near. And when I really started that, the I am affirmations every day, um, it's kind of like rock bottom. Like you don't, like I said, you don't turn on the switch and you're just there. It's an insidious process. Because it, it's it's a process on the way up too. It's one step in front of the other where you may not think that this is all working when suddenly like a few weeks down the line, you're like, Hey, wait, I I'm starting to feel better. Like what's it like? It's slow and steady wins the race. And that's what this book is. It's, I say simple strategies because it's simple. They are simple, but it's not easy because it's not easy to have a life based on choice and not just habits to be intentional every single day in what you're doing. And some in the beginning, a lot of this felt inauthentic to me. I was like, I am beautiful. I am smart. I am happy. Or I do the meditation or I'd write stuff that I was grateful for. I mean, I remember one day I wrote that I was grateful for my cell phone. <laughs> like, literally, like I had to struggle to find things, but it, it felt inauthentic until suddenly it didn't, you know, suddenly it was changing what I was grateful for. And I'm, I'm so thankful for that because it really, it, it imprints at a deeper level. And, um, I'm really thankful for that shift of what's happened in my life, because I think it's enabled me to be a better mother, you know, Mm -hmm. for my kids to really co I, I said this in the book too. And I believe this, I wish these simple methodologies that were laid out in the book were taught at an early age as coping mechanisms for anxiety and depression and mental well-being um just because they are so integral as much as geometry or home economics oh. is and i am hoping that no matter what the what your age there are principles in this book that are one irrefutable but based on clinical research and two like i almost I almost dare anyone to not try the principles in the book and tell me that you don't find that it had a positive influence on your life. It's I, I don't even see how that could be possible because when you put it all together, whether it's diet, exercise, your thoughts, gratitude, social support, you name it, when you become an intentional warrior about that and you're making these choices, it, it's going to have a benefit impact in your life. I agree. And, you know, I read a lot of books and I don't always do the exercises or whatever it is. Right. But I will tell you in your book, I literally took a lot of notes and I recommend, you know, I'm like, I went back and I do, I challenge everybody to do the gratitude. And I don't know if you're in research, if it showed, if it's better to do it in the morning or at bedtime, I, I don't know, but I tend to be doing the gratitude in the morning, but before I go to bed, I'm still like, wow, I'm, I feel good about the day. I'm grateful. You know? Um, I love that. I tend to do mine in the morning. Cause I feel like it sets up the, your day for you. You know, yeah. um, honestly, one of my favorites is I don't have it. It's actually next to my bedside. It's called the five minute journal. It's from this um, company called intelligent change where it's five minutes in the morning, do, like just writing down your affirmations, what you're grateful for, and then like what you look to accomplish this day. And then at the end of the day, you kind of touch base with it to kind of okay. close the day. And I love that. Matter of fact, I'm buying um, one for my daughter for Christmas because I really want her to start getting into that mindset too. But I think in the morning, it's a great way to start your day. You can work out so much just by journaling, can't you? It's oh, like, 100%. oh my goodness. And it sounds like, I feel like I'm always recommending it. And it's such a simple thing to do. Okay. And, and, and the gratitude part, you know, you mentioned something, it's like, I'm grateful for getting out of bed or I'm grateful I can walk. I mean, like those simple things that we so take for granted, right? It's like, yes, I'm grateful. But Kimberly, I would put that in my gratitude journal. I literally would. I mean, some, some days when I wasn't feeling that grateful, like, and it, it, it really, it kind of like recalibrates you because there are people who may not have that luxury. And I think we take so much for granted on a regular basis. And, you know, I'm, I I think in a society that sometimes can be like 
ageism oriented or look poorly mm-hmm. upon women in their 50s. Like, I'm so grateful that I'm 56. I'm grateful that I'm still here. I am grateful that I have another day. Like, I am, I am grateful that like God's given me this life. And like, when you look at that instead of, oh my gosh, like what's happened? I mean, because I'm not going to lie, this year, 2023, I had a ton of, um, very challenging things. Mm-hmm. I had spinal surgery, one mm-hmm. of the most painful surgeries of my life. I've had yeah. debilitating back pain. You know, my mother is very sick. Um, but I'm in a totally different place than I was in 2020 because I truly believe that these habits, they root you in happiness because life is going to keep on lifing, you know, trouble, like storms are going to keep coming. (laughs) It's it's just part of life. But if you are grounded in it and you are rooted in it, you're able to take it on in a different manner. And and that's what I want. I want it most importantly for my kids. You know what I mean? But my favorite thing, literally my favorite thing is when people who read the book, they'll be like, you know, that, that really helped me. If it just helps one person, then it was worth it all. And again, it was such a blessing for me to write it and share it. And what I want people to know is that it is simple. You know, it it doesn't have to be some magical aha or some really hard thing that it's the, it's the small foot soldiers that win the war and you want to run like champion a happiness crusade. And we get to, we get to dictate that. I think that was one of, um, the biggest studies that I had read that really kind of like hit me hard. Um, researcher, uh, she did this comprehensive study, really amazing. And they found three things affect happiness, right? And so many times we think um, external events affect our happiness and blah, blah, blah. And we can't control that. So we're just like helpless in the wind. And they found that external events was only 10% of what affected our happiness. 50% 50% was genetics, as you were saying. Some people aren't born with a happy disposition. 40% was intentional activities. And that was like so eye-opening for me. I was like, so let me get this straight. 40% of what dictates our happiness is intentional activities, meaning the biggest way we can move the needle is by being intentional in our day-to-day. And that's what kind of set me off. <laughs> looking for everything because you know we're not we're not just prey to whimsy of the fates or, or what happens yeah. outside of us like we can control it to a certain extent with intentional activities and that's why that's the simple part the hard part is actually practicing it so yeah, right yeah but being intentional is how I totally change my whole life, right? It's like, you know, if we just go along and let life happen to us, it's going to happen to us, right? 100%. But and it's I like, think that's the other thing for the book. People don't realize how much the decisions we make may be on autopilot mm-hmm. or the decisions we make may not be the best. Like our thinking that we're going to relax or find comfort by like opening up a bottle of wine at five o'clock and binging on Netflix and not getting activity or not reaching out. I mean, that's not, that's not a, it's a house of cards, you know, um, that's not really going to set you up for happiness in the long term. So really thinking like what, what your decision is going to be on, on even the little things. Yeah. I love when you talk about buried treasures. So I want you to share what that is. Cause I think that is really, that was really, that was, I liked that. You know, I, re- I remember I was listening to this um, radio broadcast one day and I, I remember when um, he said it, cause it, it just so hit me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a pastor actually. And he said the, the biggest source of buried treasure is a cemetery because in the cemeteries are songs that were never sung, books that were never written, businesses that were never created, like all this potential that we were given that wasn't explored and it got buried with us. And I remember that just the way it was said, I had never thought of it like that. And I was like, ouch, like that is super profound. Um, and I remember it struck it struck me so much clearly. I mean, years later, I put it in the book. Um, but two, I made a decision then and there, like, you know, 
I don't, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to bury my treasure. I'm, I'm going to leave it all on the field. I'm not going to have a woulda, coulda, shoulda, no matter what. And, you know, I, I don't care. I always say to the kids, you never fail, right? You either win or you learn. <laughs> and so like, just go for it. And cause there is nothing, nothing to me sadder than, um, potential that's not unearthed and that potential and that buried treasure is in each of us, in each of us. So that was a very profound moment for me. And I, and I feel like in the book, it's one of the things I want people to really explore, you know, because everybody has it. Everyone has a treasure. It's just like, let it shine out. And I say, I say that to my kids all the time, you know, don't let anyone like dim your brightness or like, like you unearth that treasure yourself. Yeah. I think sometimes people get so, um, worked up or stressed trying to think about like, what's my passion? What can I do? And it becomes overwhelming rather than just kind of looking inward. What am I good at? What are my strengths? What do I like? What do I want to do? How do I want to spend my time? Right. Totally. Yeah. It's just like, we get so caught up in all the noise that we just really don't live. Right. And you talk a little bit about that when we talk about writing down our goals, why it's so important. People can get overwhelmed with writing down goals. It's like, I don't know what I want. I don't know. But it's like, it is important that we write down our goals. Um, But I liked when you talked about outcome versus process. And I feel like I'm trying to do that more, you know, stop looking towards the end and just really start enjoying more of the process. Because I think that's actually where the joy or the happiness is taking place, right? The, it's the journey. And and one, going back to writing down your goals, studies, again, not just me, not just best opinion, studies yeah. have shown you are 42%. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Not 5% or 10%. You are 42% more likely to achieve your goals if you write it down. So that's number one. <laughs> so yeah. if you have a goal that you really want, write it down. Two, um, I, I, this used to be me so bad and, and I can still fall prey to it. It's like my type A personality where I tied my self to my results, like results, results, results. And I was always so tied to my results and studies have actually found that if you're only tied to your results, that actually can lead to unhappiness. And that's why you need to have a combination of process and outcome goals. And I give the example of say your outcome goal is I want to lose 20 pounds. The process goal could be I'm going to walk like 20 minutes every single day, or I'm going to drink eight glasses of water a day. And so having the process goals actually, because those are like the little achievable steps, Mm -hmm. like eating an elephant one bite at a time, you have to have that combination of both to really support your happiness. Because if you're always tied up to the result, you're really missing the joy of the journey. And, And there's, there's joy in the journey. There's little wins along the way. So celebrate that. Hey, I walked 10,000 steps today or, hey, you know, whatever that may be. And to always tie it to the result, um, you're, you're really doing a disservice to yourself. That was a big aha for me because I was always all about my results, my results, my results. Yeah. Talk about the vision walk. I love that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So one of my dear friends in California, she's actually, um, a life and career coach among many things. She's just so incredible and dynamic. Um, Victoria, I didn't even know she was taking me on a vision walk till after the fact, which is probably good. Cause if she would have said to me, Hey, let's do a vision walk. I probably would have done the eye roll thing again. And like, no, uh-huh. thanks, no, thanks. Let's go get a glass of wine. But we were like, I had just broken up um, with my boyfriend of seven years. And I was just so like beside myself and we'd gone out to lunch. And she said, you know what, Beth, just do me a favor. She's like, I want you to describe in great detail your perfect day. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, from the moment you wake up to when you go to bed at night, she goes, I want you to just explain and visualize every single detail. And as I started going through it, she would like ask me more questions to get me deeper. Well, what did it look like? What 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 were you feeling? What did it smell like? And literally about everything. And what I realized that at the end of the vision walk of the 10 minutes of really from the beginning to when I went to bed at night, when I described that perfect day, it was the opposite of what 
my life had been in that relationship. Mm. And that was so eye-opening, like, oh my God, like, why am I so depressed or mourning the demise of this relationship when it was so far off from what I would consider to be my perfect day? And it really, it was, it served a twofold benefit in that context for me and that it really enabled me to help let go of that other relationship because I realized it was very far stretched from what I was really looking for. And it really encouraged me to focus on what I had described and to look for that moving forward. And um, then when it was all said and done, I was like, oh my God, Victoria, that was like the craziest thing. That was so good. She's like, it's called a vision walk. And I'm like, <laughs> and I loved it. And I actually put that exercise in the book because I think I I want people to give themselves the liberty and the luxury to dream of that perfect day. Cause it's not, it can, you can like ultimately affect and create that. You know, it doesn't have to be a fairy tale dream. Like if this is your perfect day, what, okay, now you've described it. Now you're clear on it. Now you're clear on this is what you consider a perfect day. And guess what? Mine wasn't, um, being a multimillionaire or walking down the red carpet. Like it was a very simple day, like starting out from like making breakfast with my kids or what the atmosphere, like it was a very simple, like every day of the week, like a Wednesday or something. When you really get clear on this is what your perfect day, then you can take the steps. Like I said, the process goals. (laughs) Okay. This is my outcome goal of what I really want. What are the process goals to get there and work towards it? And I think it's just a really powerful exercise. Yeah. I think, I think what you mentioned is you were hanging on to these negative things that really weren't working for you. You weren't enjoying it. It wasn't making you happy. You know what I mean? It was such an aha moment. I'm like, wait, why am I so sad or boo-hooing when literally it was like nothing. My real life had been nothing of like what I envisioned. Um, So it was freeing too, you know? Sometimes you got to let go and burn down what was to make space for what should be. So that was um, a big thing. The vision walk did for me. Yeah. I love that. I just, I'm so thank you for sharing that. And I definitely, I think everybody needs to walk through that exercise just because man, we hang on to some stuff that does not serve us. A hundred percent. Does not. And it's like, wow. I mean, yeah, it could just be a simple thing that we really enjoy that makes us happy that we're overlooking. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, we women are so hard on ourselves. Sometimes we're very critical of ourselves. Like we've mentioned, um, what are some ways I love some of the tips you gave us? How can we become more compassionate with ourselves, have more grace for ourselves and really show ourselves like some self-love like real. Yeah. Um, I added this towards the chapter when I was talking about like showing love and social connection to others. And I was like, okay, we're not going to finish this chapter without talking about the love and compassion we show ourselves. And because, you know, that's who we're in the most relationship here is ourselves. And this is probably also has been one of my biggest struggles and challenges. Um, And just as a side note, I think that's the best part about midlife and middle age. Like I have gotten so much better at self-love and Mm self-talk. And even when it comes from just my body on than I was in my twenties. Like I would never go want to go back to that. So if there's, and this is why I try to tell my kids this too. I'm like, if there's a way that you could take what you know in your fifties and really apply it in your twenties, it's going to serve you so much. You have no idea. And I think as women in particular, we can be so hard on ourselves. And one of the things I talk about is just like being perfectly imperfect, that we are perfect. I love Brene Brown's book, The Gift of Imperfections. You know, it's just such a great book. Like to reframe that our imperfections are a gift. You know what I mean? And we are perfect exactly as we are with our scars and our faults and so forth. It's all part of our beauty. And I think that's huge. And just other ways to show self-love and compassion is like the ability to say no. Mm-hmm. I, one of my favorite quotes, um, as you know, I love quotes. <laughs> Me too. I was watching an interview with Jane Fonda and she said a really life changing moment for her was when she realized that no was a full sentence. Yeah. And that really hit me. You know what I mean? Cause especially cause as women, we just don't, 
we can never just say no. We have to give no, but like give our reason, our excuse, or to like make apologies for it. And when she realized that she got an older, she could be unapologetic. And by that, not callous or rude, but like right, right. say no, because no is a full sentence. That was like such an aha moment for me that I could say no in a way without having to apologize for it or to make excuses for it. So I thought that was huge. Um, stop the comparison. I tell this to my kids all the time, especially um, with social media. I have to tell them, guys, I go, nobody is putting up on Instagram their ugly cry face or their puffy eyes or talking right. about what's going on behind the scenes. It's all these perfectly curated pictures where everyone looks perfect and everyone looks happy. And I mean, God, with AI and filters nowadays, half the time you don't know what's real or not, what's not. And I'm like, yes. you've got to stop the comparison. Like it is just an exercise in futility. And, you know, studies show to lead to depression and anxiety. So that's huge too. Um, I think when we talk about this earlier, focusing on our strengths, you know, so often, especially as we get older, I remember I used to just look in the mirror and look at everything that was going South gravity wise, or why don't I look the same as I do in my picture right here when I'm 20. And instead of focusing on that to really like write down your strengths, focus on your strengths. Like you are a rock star and you may not even realize it. And, and it's little things. I, I had to say this to one of my best friends yesterday. I was giving her a compliment and she tried to push it or like fluff it away. And I'm like, that's another thing that we always do. Like we just yeah. like, oh, yeah. And we like accept compliments. I know that sounds so stupid, but like when you accept the compliment, again, your brain's always listening. It starts to take root in yourself. You have to have compassionate self-talk for you and other ways are like showing love and compassion for yourself is just taking care of yourself mm-hmm. like self-care rituals my youngest I love this she'll always be like mom I'm gonna have and she's 17 I'm gonna have a self-care day and she takes the bath and she lights candles and she has relaxing music playing then she does facial masks and she's very intentional about it like she'll be like, sorry, mom, I can't do that. She like puts aside three hours. Like we have to do that. Like take time to like love on yourself, get a massage, read a book. Like it may be different for every, for me, believe it or not, because being a single mom, you can be going in a million directions. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. My just got home from school and my dogs are, are barking hello. But um, for, for me, it's reading a book, like taking yeah. that time to cuddle up when bed and like put a blanket around and like a hot cup of coffee or tea and just yeah. like enjoy reading a, but a fictional book you know something that I can just like let my mind go away with um that's my form of it but I think as women as mothers and so forth um we can let that fall to the wayside because we tend to be caretakers and taking care of everyone else and we forget to take care of ourselves you know and I think that's really important you're so right. I did that my whole, all my forties. I mean, I was a mess, you know, I was stressed. I was an overachiever. I'm going through school. I'm working full time. I got my kid. self-care. I'm like, what the heck is yeah, that? Like, <laughs> right? We put ourselves lowest on the totem pole, you know, I mean, you have to think of the airplane analogy, put the oxygen on yourself first before you can <laughs> yeah. help other people. And it's so true because when we let our self-care and our self-compassion, when we like let our tank go empty, we have nothing to give anyone else. You know, we have to make sure our tank is full and then we can, we can give our love and our care to other people as well. But, um, I think we let ourselves, our tank go empty way too much. And so I I really felt like a a part about self-compassion was imperative, imperative for us. It really is. And letting go of the past. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. I love that. I think we'll end there. Um, but I want you to share real quick, the, the largest study on human health. And what they yeah, actually yeah. found, I, I read that study and I think he wrote the book, The Good Life. I didn't mm-hmm. read the book yet, but I listened to a podcast with him. And I think it really is shows us in the end what really, really matters and keeps us happy. But on the other hand, some of us that are maybe introverted, we don't make connections easily. That can be a source of stress, right? It's like, oh no, I need to make all these connections to have a long, healthy life. So what are your thoughts on that? Share that. Yeah. So the, the Harvard, um, 
study of adult development, 75 years, the largest longitudinal study of that nature. Um, Dr. Valiant, the primary principal investigator of that, he summarized the results of that study. And this was studying all these people for 75 years to see what were the predictors of happiness, unhappiness, and mental well-being. And as he summarized his results, he said, without a doubt, um, the largest predictor of happiness and mental well-being is love, full stop. And it's uh, this is my favorite part of the story. Um, some reporter wrote in an article saying, oh, okay, like all there is is love, right? Like, come on, don't you think that's a little overly sentimental in your interpretations? Right. right. Instead of getting defensive about it, Dr. Valiant went back and took a month to review the 75, all the results of the studies, again, to make sure that there was no bias or no sentimentality involved. And once again, came out clear, undisputed, the results is love and social connection is really the cornerstone of happiness, which um, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> One, I mean, I you couldn't ask for like a better result. And two, it really makes sense. Um as they say on, on our deathbed, I don't think anyone's ever saying, I wish I would have worked more. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. That's that's typically not what you're hearing. It's more spending time with loved ones and, and family and friends and so forth. And that's why social support and emotional support and expression is so integral to happiness. And as you said, some people are more introverted or might may find themselves in a scenario where it's not as easy to, I found that um, I had lived, let's see, my whole life I had lived in, I grew up on the East coast and I moved 30 years ago to um, Arizona. And then nine years ago, I moved from Arizona to California. So I was like 47 or so at the time. And I moved for that, for that relationship, <laughs> the antithesis of my vision walk. Um, and when we had broken up, literally, I had no social support. I was in a brand new state. All my besties were in Arizona or on the East Coast. And I was like, wow. My kids were at that point, oh gosh, they were like six and seven. Um, so I really had to become intentional about that. And sometimes it's forcing yourself to do things that it doesn't, I know I may come across as like very gregarious and outgoing, but I can actually like walking into a party or anything or a group where I don't know anyone, I would almost rather go get a dental procedure. <laughs> like, yeah. A lot of my friends don't believe that because they're like, you used to speak up on stage and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. That I, I do not go, like going into places where I don't know anyone. Like I would, I hate it. It literally, I hate it. Like, so when I tell you I had to push myself to do it, I did. But again, anything you resist, most likely you should do, right? You have to push through it. Everything that you want in this world, I tell my kids this all the time, is on the other side of fear. So I actually got very intentional about meeting people and joining clubs and so forth. I did I did this retreat weekend where I was with this bunch of people for 60 people for uh, three days. And literally three of my best friends came out of that weekend because we spent so much time together. I started yoga. I joined yoga. You know, I started, I joined a church and I got very intentional about doing activities that I could build my social support network. And if it's taking a photography class or joining a support group, you name it, there are so many things at our disposal nowadays. And yes, you have to push yourself to do it. Yes, I did not want to walk into that retreat by myself. It is the best decision I made while I was in California because three of the people are still my best friends to this day, you know? And given the fact that one of the primary <laughs> fundamental denominators of happiness is love and social support and connection. That's not something that you can ignore. You know, I don't care how much financial success you have. I don't care how much career success you have. If you don't have that, um, that is probably something that you need to focus on. And I talk about growing your garden mm -hmm. and how that is really important.
as important as self-care and self-love, as important as everything else in that book. So, and I said, don't believe me, believe this, the 75 year Harvard study. <laughs> right, right, right. I think that's it. It's, it's making an effort. Yeah. It's getting out of our comfort zone, reaching out, putting ourselves in different places rather than just sitting at home and hibernating with, you know, not. It's so much easier when you're younger. Think about it. Like when you're in college, you're in classes and you're right. surrounded by people or when you first start out at a new job, typically you're all with peers in the workplace or even when you're a brand new mommy. Like you're yeah. at mommy play dates and play groups and you have the common things. It, it's There are certain times in life where it's definitely easier. At 47 in a brand new state, it was like, okay, now what? Right. <laughs> like, yeah, I really had to get intentional. And that really, wow. like, really affected, like, my quality of life. And so I'm just so grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. I loved, I, you gave a lot of different ideas, which I thought were all really helpful. And it's so important um, based on that study. Um, lastly, talk about how the past prepare, prepares us and why we should not let it define us. Yeah. Um, well, again, I talk about quotes that I love and I, and one of the ones that I think particularly for me is that the past doesn't define us. It refines us, you know, and it prepares us for what's happening now. And that I think we talked a little bit about that earlier. Um, I want people to look at their past, no matter what it is as a blessing. Cause you know, there's blessings in everything. If you just stop to look for it, you have to look for the silver lining. And I always tell the kids, you know, in order to have a beautiful tapestry in life, you're going to have the bright threads and the dark threads. And it's the combination of both, which makes up the beauty because you're learning and you're growing from everything. And it doesn't, the past isn't a death sentence. It's not, it's not like, it's not an inundation. Like it's not defining who you are. It's preparing yourself in a different way. And as I told you, like even 2020, as bad as it was, I don't regret any of that. I feel like it prepared me for who I am today and the version of who I am today, because we're growing every single day. We are a better person every single day. And if we really look at this as a journey, you know, and not, I don't, regret a single thing that's happened in my life because everything that happened, the good and the bad has brought me exactly to where I am right now. And, um, I, I want, I feel people who focus too much on the past one, I mean, they, they say, if you focus so much on the past, it can lead to such depression. You focus too much on the future, at least anxiety. Like you really want to be in the here and now. And the past is what got you here. And everything that we've been through is a refining, a refinement process to make us better. So um, I feel like that's very important. And I feel like when you filter your life experiences through that, it's it's life changing. I talk about in the last chapter, um, a very difficult thing that happened to me as a teenager when I was in high school, something that I hadn't talked about in 25 years. And I had a lot of shame and sadness surrounding that incident um, and the therapy and so forth helped me repurpose it. And it was, I remember when I wrote it in the book and I wrote it as part of my last chapter and I got tears in my eyes because I was like, God, something that's so bad that happened 40 years ago, I was able to repurpose it now and use it to underscore a point that your past doesn't define you. You know what I mean? It makes you stronger. And that I had no shame about the incident, but I was able to put it in the book in an impactful, powerful way. It was such a full circle moment, you know, like, and that's, I think the quote I have around that point is they, they tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds, right? <laughs> because yeah, you right? Think I love that. things that are going to like break you or knock you down, really make you stronger and more resilient and mm -hmm. more loving and so forth. And I think when you can look when you can look at your past and so forth through eyes of compassion, um, it really, compassion starts at home. <laughs> you know what I mean? It starts with you. Yeah. You got to offer it to other people, compassion, grace, but it starts with yourself. And so, yeah. and I just want people to really get that. Yeah. I, I read somewhere, I don't know what it was, but it made, it really hit me that we're the only species that punishes ourselves the same thing over and over, over and again. over again, right? And it's tormenting. It is. We create a prison 
and it keeps us stuck in our life and we can't grow. And that's really where the growth takes place, isn't it? Everything I've I've become so strong through everything I've gone through and the growth through everything. The hundred percent that is where growth oh, takes place. That's you know? right. So um how can how can you regret that then? Because it right. just it 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 challenges your metal and it shows you who you are. So um and I think when people think like that, it's also very empowering. It yeah. it it because you are able, I think that's, I love that you love stoicism because it, yeah. because that's why I love stoicism. You can't control what happens to you all the time, but mm-hmm. you can control how you respond to it and how you interpret it, mm-hmm. you know? And that's what, that's very powerful and transformative. And I, I feel that way about our past too. So. And learning to take that pause before we st- respond. I'm practicing. Yep. That. Yeah. The, oh, trust me. <laughs> the pause. You know, I was like, power of the pause. Yeah, that's right. Well, Beth, what did you learn? What changed you from writing this book? And I'll show everybody what the book looks like. I love how you said the um, cover you had on your phone as a vision. I love that. I did. I, did. Yeah, I love that. I think that's great. And it goes along with vision boards and really visualizing your future. Um, but what did you learn from writing this book? And has it changed your life? I, I, again, when I go back to the research that I studied, I think the biggest thing that I learned, especially when it comes to happiness is that 40% is dictated by intentional activities. Mm-hmm. So that's very powerful that you can, um, be in control of your daily choices that dictates your happiness. You know, that we're not just a helpless leaf flying around in the wind. I think that was the biggest choice for me because I really got to take a hard look at what my daily choices were. And when I was at rock bottom, they were not good choices. (laughs) They were like staying in bed, binging on Netflix. Hi, Chardonnay was my best friends as one postmates. I mean, it was like not answering the phone when my friends called. It was like all these things. I was isolation. They were terrible choices that no wonder I was at rock bottom. And when I became an intentional warrior about my choices, um, that's when you can see the magic and the change happen. So that was probably the biggest thing that I learned in researching and writing the book. And I think the other thing I would probably take away is that there is no timeline on potential, you know, like... I I wrote a book when I was 53. (laughs) I mean, there's no timeline. Grandma Moses started painting at 78. Like there is no timeline on it. And the best is always yet to be. I I really believe that too. So again, it's just a, a great way to look at life. It's probably a better book at 53 than it would have been at 33 say, you know, I, I wouldn't have been, able to, I wouldn't have been able to write it at 23 or 33. I, I truly wouldn't have because so many of my life lessons were in there. So, I mean, there's something to be said right there. And that's what I always tell my kids. I go, you know, you don't necessarily have to go through the muck to understand the lesson. You can learn from my lessons too. So I'll tell them the good, bad, and the ugly and be like, okay, mom did this. Like, let's see, what can you take from that to learn? So, um, there are certain things that true wisdom does come with age to a certain extent. So you're right. I wouldn't have been able to write this book at 33, even That's 43 right. for that matter. So, yeah, I think the lesson I've learned is really our happiness is determined by us. It's not anybody else. Yeah. A hundred percent. We can determine our own happiness. Um, what two books do you love and recommend? What influenced you throughout your life? Is there two books you have that you would want others to read? I loved, I love books. So I always ask this oh, question. No, no, no. So do I, so do I. So I mean, I, I actually wrote a part about this in my book too. Like there are certain books that I have and that I've reread over again throughout my lifetime because they're, I, they're just such great books and they're great for a refresher course. Mm-hmm. And I actually have three that I reread um, periodically. One is the four agreements by um, Miguel Luiz. What's his yeah. name? I'm I'm blanking on his last name, but I love the four agreements because that's kind of a book about how I want to interact with myself. You know what I mean? Like not taking things too personally. His one agreement that I just always sticks with me is be impeccable with your word. You know, I love the four agreements. That's a book about how you want to be with yourself. 
Mm-hmm. Another one I've read several times is The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. And what I love about that is that's a book about how to navigate and how to be in the world to make a difference. Like what is your purpose? Purpose-driven life, hence the title. So outside of you. And then probably the third one that I've read a bunch of times and I love, and I've done that. I've had my kids take the quiz. I take the quiz. Um, It's the love languages by the five love languages by Gary Chapman. Because I think when you realize what your love languages are and what other people's love languages are, it really gives a roadmap of how to interact with the close people in your life. Like my two children, they have very totally different love languages. And I'm speaking to them in a love language that doesn't mean anything to them. It's That was a very aha moment for me to really understand the five love languages and to realize that you have to speak to the other person and what resonates with them and what fills their tank. So those are my three, like kind of what affects my conversation with me, what converses, affects my conversation with the people close in my sphere that I love. And then what affects my conversation with like the universe and how I want to show up and what difference I want to make. I, I love all three of those books. That's awesome. Yeah. Those are great books. Um, well, Beth, where can everybody do you, are you real active on social media? Where can people follow yeah, you? And I have a website. BethRomeroAuthor.com, uh, where people can reach out to me there, which I love. Also on Instagram and Facebook. Um, I love hearing from people. So please feel free to like reach out on any of those areas and connect. And I just love to hear um, if they have the opportunity to read the book, like how it affected them or what their thoughts are. And I'm open to like I said, you, you don't lose to good and bad. I'm open to constructive criticism too. I want to, I truly want to hear what everyone has to say. I I love that. So I would love it for people to reach out. Maybe not, maybe not. <laughs> no, I, I, I can't imagine anything negative coming out of your book. I really, I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time. And hopefully you will write another book and <laughs> join me again. <laughs> Thank you so much for having Thanks, me. Kimberly. It was so it's been fun. Great. Yeah, indeed. Okay. You have a great day. You too.